Welcome to Bible Over Brews, deep thoughts fermented over time and text. I'm coming at you, Aaron Crew Juice Viverk, and I've got Gumby. Hey, what's going on? I've got Mr. Michael O'Neill. Hey, how you guys doing tonight? <laughs> good, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I have to say, I'm, I'm rather excited about tonight's show. Um, it was a pleasure having you on the first time. And uh, How long ago was that? I think it was about a year ago. Right? I think it was about a year ago. Seems so much longer than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think during this uh, pandemic, you just add a couple years to any kind of uh, calculation of years. But yeah, it seems like it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So, sounds like my waistline. <laughs> just add a couple. <laughs> we'll be uh, trying out Coach Dunkel. And this is from the Schnitz Brewery over in Parma, Ohio. It's, uh, we made our kolsch with roasted malts and crafted this easy and smooth drinking dark ale. It's an ABV of 5.25. Looking forward to this. This is a local. And right from the start, wow, not much head at all. It's got to be one of the coolest looking breweries we have here. <laughs> yeah, it's from the, uh, so... Uh, German flair. <laughs> yeah. The Schnitzel House was originally the restaurant, and now they've opened up a brewery across the street from it. So, but right in the top, it's a very thin head. Not a whole lot of nose, actually. Very dark. Ooh, but incredibly smooth. It definitely is a Kolsch, but it's not a harsh bite. It's it's quite light. It's smooth. Almost like a... Uh, hmm. Wow. Almost like a light, chocolatey overtone. Yeah. Very light. It tastes nothing like it smells. No, no. It smells a bit darker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like it. That's fantastic. <laughs> Mr. Michael O'Neill. Um, I will say, right from the get-go, after you told me that, uh, that you, you brought these shows up, because honestly, I, I apologize. I have not kept up to date over the last year because I've been so busy with my daytime job and then launching my own personal businesses on the side. As soon as you told me that, I actually went on the WTN and I bought the whole season of uh, <laughs> of They May Be Saints and uh, Explore. Um, well, thank you for that big uh, donation <laughs> to EWTN. That's a, a lot of episodes you bought. <laughs> uh, but the, I've already started watching them. Really awesome. We'll we'll, uh, we'll dip into each one of those because I, I really think that we need to explore all of your endeavors. They're they're really cool. Like really really cool. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate you checking them out. Yeah, I, I'm. If you can't tell, I'm having a blast. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's fantastic. Let's uh, let's start with uh, uh, they may be saints. Um, it's kind of a fun thing because I've never seen anybody explore anything like this before. You know, you hear about it here and there uh, in the Catholic world. Um, not really any, anywhere outside of that either. Uh, but it's it's interesting that you're chronicling all the people who are on their way uh, to sainthood. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this project? Because it's it's kind of unique. Yeah, it's great. I really do like it. Uh, and the title is They Might Be Saints. It's uh, it's a, an offshoot of the uh, of the band They Might Be Giants, as you might <laughs> guess by that name. So um, 
and there's a, a book that corresponds to to the television series. And the concept be, behind the series is Americans on the Path to Sainthood and the Search for Canonization Miracles. So it's this combination. Everybody likes a good saint story. Everybody likes a good miracle story. So you you mix those two together and you, you get this show. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, we, we get the sort of sense of American pride or excitement when somebody from our own soil rate rises up and becomes, you know, uh, recognized as a saint in the Catholic Church. And we all know people who study this stuff and, and not, they know it takes a long time, right? So uh, from death to sainthood can be hundreds of years sometimes. So I think it's kind of exciting to see that there are some Americans on the path to sainthood. And if you read the book, they might be saints. It's a little bit of like an American history lesson. You get some insight into uh, all these saints uh, over over the ages of America. So it's a it's a fun project. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> that's really seriously. And um, just because a lot of our audience is evangelical, we have both Catholic, evangelical, and even agnostic listeners, um, as well as uh, a small Islamic crowd. Um, I don't think most of them are familiar with what it takes to get to sainthood. Um, can you define how a person goes from being just a believer and then all the way up to the process of, of sainthood? Absolutely. And uh, for people who want uh, more detail uh, in my book, they might be saints. I dedicate a whole chapter to uh, this uh, this path to sainthood and also the search for, for miracles. And every show, we try to give a little hint about how the process works, but the shows are short. They're 30 minutes, so we only uh, get into it a little bit. But uh, the first and foremost comment is, is that all of us might be saints, right? But you have to be dead to be a saint. And uh, if you have to be, if you have to go with a Catholic definition of saint, you'd have to say somebody who's in heaven with God. So that's kind of the the Catholic angle at what a saint really is. And so the sainthood process, you know, we, we might look at it as a uh, election to the Hall of Fame in some ways, but you know, it's more than just honoring the people who have uh, lived a good life. You know, it's it's the idea that. We have these people who have been set up as models for us so they can show us how it's done. We're all trying to get to heaven. That's the goal that we all have uh, as Protestants or Catholics uh, or, or otherwise. I think eternal life is the big goal, right? So seeing other people who have verifiably marched along that path and done it, you know, it's good to know who they are. And also Catholics believe in uh, intercessory miracles. And so, you know, I think that we pray to those people who are close to God so that they might give us a little boost. You know, I, I pray to all my friends, the saints in heaven, hoping somebody will pick up the phone, right? You know, it's like, uh, you know, having people close to God is a good thing. So I think that knowing who's a saint and, and who's on the way is kind of an important thing. So uh, there are four steps in the canonization process. The first is servant of God. That's when basically your friends or people who care about you or those people who have learned about your life say, you know, this person might be a saint. Let's get the process started. And so uh, when you're out of the gate, you're considered servant of God. That's the first step. And then when it's when they've gathered all your data, when they've dug up uh, everything about you, they've opened every closet, lived, lifted up every rug, interviewed every person, interviewed every, uh, looked at every interview bit or everything you've written. I don't think I have a shot at sainthood just based on the amount that I've written and the, the amount that I've produced, because that's a lot to go through and they're going to find something that's wrong with me. But that's the way that's the case for everybody. Right. We've all got got things. But these saints are people who have passed that test and they've looked over every aspect of their life and they say, this is somebody who's lived a life of heroic virtue. Mm. And then the Pope will put a stamp of approval calling you venerable at that stage. 
And then the process for searching for a miracle begins and not until that point. And then if you've shown, been shown to work a miracle uh, through your singular intercession, then you're called blessed. A second miracle makes you a saint. So there are four distinct steps. And what's really uh, difficult about it is that when it comes to the intercessory miracles, you can only, that you can only pr uh, pray to that one future saint, right? So theoretically, let's say you needed some help in some uh, financial matter or other matter in your life, and you prayed for a miracle, and you prayed or for, a, for a healing of some sort, most typically, you pray to Mother Teresa and John Paul II and St. Therese and some future saint. If you were to get a miracle and you were to present that to the bishop or to the Vatican and say, hey, check it out, this future saint might be a legitimate saint, They'd say, congrats on your miracle, but we're going to go with John Paul II or Mother <laughs> Teresa or somebody else, not your might-be saint. So you got to direct your prayers and all the prayers of all your family and friends, everybody praying to you, has to go to that just one saint so there's no confusion mm. about who worked the miracle. So anytime they find a little bit of a miracle, it is a miracle in and of itself. So it's a, it's a tricky process. Nice. Yeah. I, who all gets a vote? Oh. <laughs> Well, it, it is a process, right? So yeah, right. So um, it's a great question. So um, when a when they propose somebody as a saint, they have to do all these interviews. It's called the diocesan phase. So you interview every person who knew the person who's alive, wow. and in some historical cases, they interview historians and otherwise. But they interview everybody. They put it together in this book called the Positio, which is Latin word for position paper. And they, it's basically several hundred pages long. It's got a red cover. They bind it up with a ribbon, put it in a box, and send it to the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. They, looked at, they look at it over the course of five to ten years, and then they come back with the results after a vote. And if they come back with a positive verdict, then their person's name venerable, uh, as, as, as done by Pope Francis. Then when it comes to a uh, miracle... There's a second set of, of uh, processes that go on. It's the Positio Super Miraculo, which means the position paper relating to a miracle. So they uh, do all the interviews again. They do all the doctor testimony. They submit all the x-rays, the MRIs, the whole deal. And they submit that to Rome and the Congregation for the Cause of Saints. Another vote goes on. And if that goes through by two-thirds majority, then the Pope can uh, beatify you. So it's, wow. a, it's a long, long process. That's incredible. Uh, you know, I, I'm the only Protestant here. <clears throat> so I tip my hat to the process. Uh, it, it's such a fetid process. I have to just tip my hat and say, wow. Yeah, I mean, there's that's, something that's to that, right, is that I think perhaps the process is so insane and, and so well uh, developed. I mean, it's been going on since uh, Prospero Lambertini, this Italian cardinal born in the 1600s. He developed all the rule book for how the church investigates miracles and canonizes people. Mm -hmm. And that's still the, the rule book they use today. So I think one of the beautiful parts that you're kind of alluding to is that the process is so insane and so detailed that when they do vet somebody's life, then they do find a miracle. It's hard to argue with it, right? Exactly. You say, well, yeah. I, I guess that's a miracle if they've spent all that time, all that money, all that effort, all those votes. And then the Pope goes ahead and says it looks good. It's probably pretty good at that point. <laughs> yeah. it, it's kind of hard to really uh, to judge it as a fraud at that point. You know, anyone on the outside of the Catholic Church, when you have a process like that, that detailed. So. Yeah, and, and some of them are, are extraordinary tales. And some of them are, are uh, it touches the heart, right? I was, I was listening to the one you had with, uh, with Father Baker, and... Uh, it, it was such a such a heartfelt one because it has to do with people, you know, two two couple or a couple who really wants, 
you know, to have a child and, and the doctor tells them they can't have a child. And it's, you know, it kind of tugs at the heartstrings because you realize, you know, how deep, you know, that kind of devotion goes, you know? <laughs> yeah. That, that was an excellent episode all around. I think just the, the life of father Baker, what he accomplished, you know, what he did for the community there in Buffalo. And then the, we always put a story at the end because we want to inspire people to pray uh, for the, to the intercession of these uh, future saints. And that was a good one. Uh, definitely uh, for all those people who are uh, struggling to have children or, uh, or, or see that the importance of that uh, to see those uh, to see that uh, miracle story, so to speak, come true. And of course, that's not uh, what's being used in his canonization cause. That's just an inspiring story. Uh, but uh, but it was a good one. And uh, we would try to do that at the end of every episode where we work in the story of uh, a favor, a grace, a blessing, a miracle, whatever it may be, to, to inspire people to, to seek those people out uh, for prayer. Yeah, it was just really cool. And a, and a fun story to share with people. <laughs> and then uh, I... I have to say, I really am enjoying your um, your Explore series. Uh, it's fun to see you on site as you're explaining these different events. Um, and this is a, this is a, a different series that you're doing, um, but to actually see you at Lords or see you at Lancion, uh, if I say it, if I'm saying that correctly, because my Italian's terrible, but. <laughs> Uh, to see you there is just just fantastic. What kind of experience is that to to travel to these places and to get all these details? Yeah, I feel I feel very honored and blessed that EWTN is. Uh... Uh, you know, shown that vote of confidence in me to, to give me two shows. So I've got the one show which airs on Fridays at uh, 4 p.m. Uh, Central Time, and the other one airs on uh, on Saturdays at uh, 6 p.m. Central Time. So uh, having back-to-back weekend shows is a is a real honor and blessing. So I'm so grateful to EWTN for that. Um, but the Explorer episode is a Catholic travel show, basically. So I travel the world. I go to all the most famous places of miracles. And I get to go there myself, and we capture all the footage and you know beautiful uh, 4K resolution. We've got drone shots, and then we try to tell the story using recreation. So, um, you know, it's really kind of amazing to see uh, at Lanciano, for example, you're referencing that Eucharistic miracle to actually show what a Eucharistic miracle might look like. You know, or if you saw the Sacred Heart uh, episode at Paré Le Monial in France, you know, to see that Sacred Heart of Jesus. Uh, you know, come to life in a way that I've never seen it done like that on film before. And it's really, uh, I feel very honored to work with the team that I do to, to bring those, those scenes to life that we read about in books. And we have these sort of mental images of what that might've looked like, but to see it on screen in such beautiful detail, I'm, I'm so honored to, to get to the chance to do this. So it's a lot of fun and, you know, getting to travel like that and see the world, you can't beat that. I'm pretty, pretty excited about that. No, you can't. Yeah, and it really brings it to life as we're as we're watching it as well, and and you're hearing the actual stories, um, especially with with stories like Lancio, where where they're they're going through and they're and they're testing miracles medically, scientifically, um, and you actually get to collect that information. In fact, there was little tidbits of that as I, as I was watching it. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, so it was it was it was really cool. Yeah, and and people who know me, they know like I, 
I love data. I love science. I'm an engineer and a scientist in a former life, I suppose. Uh, so I bring some of that to bear with these episodes. And, and I just love to pack it full of information. So with these episodes, I'm basically putting everything I know about, about that given miracle. So hopefully some people will walk away with that same thing that you said, like, I didn't know that. That's pretty interesting. So, um, but yeah, I, I have a lot of fun just getting to travel the world. I just got back uh, two weeks ago. I was in Ireland and England and we filmed six new episodes of Explore. They'll come out next year but uh it was really kind of a a fun a fun thing to get to go to these places like knock in ireland or or walsingham in england uh these these incredible places of miracles so oh that's so cool so you got a science and engineer background yeah i have a mechanical engineering degree from stanford um you know some time ago it's a it seems like a former life in a lot of ways uh but uh you know I, i approach miracles in the same way i think people say how the heck did you go from you know this uh, you know, studying hard data and, uh, and science. That's going to be my next question. <laughs> and, then, and then you get to something that's so ethereal and, yeah. and, uh, and uh, boundless, like the pursuit of miracles. So, um, you know, I think that I try to apply, you know, my love of data to miracles. If you go to my website, miraclehunter.com, you'll see as many as 2,500 claims of Marian apparitions documented in detail on the website. And I try to, you know, I try to point things out when they're worthy of belief and when they're not. I only relate what the Catholic Church, how they judge these things. But, mm. um, you know, I, I try to, to I try to deal with these things with cold precision when I can, because I think that people yeah. appreciate that kind of serious approach to miracles. Yeah, yeah. that makes yeah. it stronger. I know I do because I'm a I, I'm, I'm a I'm a believer, but I'm also an eternal skeptic. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's where that's where I often say the uh, Catholicism really helped save me because I was, I was going into a lot of directions, really trying to figure things out, and uh, like hard, like I was hours and hours every night. I was just really confused over all the different theologies and ideas, and um, you know, I often told told my wife after I finally came into uh, Catholicism, I was like. Honestly, saved my faith. <laughs> um, but uh, and you do have that series on uh, on EWTN as well. That's right. So um, yeah, I, I think that it's uh, EWTN has been a real blessing for me. I've got the the radio show which airs on Saturdays, actually at one p.m. and seven p.m. Eastern time, and uh, you know that that's a lot of fun as well because as you guys have the same experience, you get to invite who you want on the show get to ask them all the questions you want. And, you know, I'm, I'm all miracles all the time. That's all I talk about. I, you know, when even, I've had a few guests come on to my show, uh, Harry Connick Jr. One time, uh, you know, contacted me to come on the show. And no I way. said, wow. I said, you can, you can come on, but you have to talk a little bit about miracles. It's the rule, you know, you can't just come on and talk about your music or your show. So, um, you know, I think that it's an important thing to, to keep the theme strong and, you know, yeah. I get to talk to some amazing people all around the world, as you guys get to as well. Uh, you know, just just ask them what you want to ask them about about miracles or otherwise. So it's it's been that's been a, a fun thing over the years to get to do over the course of three radio stations. So, so is he Catholic? Harry Connick? He is. Catholic? Yeah, he is. Oh, that's awesome. That's why yeah. his music is great. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any? Yeah, do you have any? He's fa- a good guy, and that was on Relevant Radio some years ago. So I've, 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 uh, I've moved from uh, Radio Maria to Relevant Radio to EWTN, but the the show has stayed the same. So, uh, so it's been it's been a lot of fun to to get to go on through three networks for that. That's awesome. <laughs> do you have any favorite guests or favorite stories from that show? Well, um, I have I have this guest. Um, 
And unfortunately, he can't go. He's he's retired now. He's a uh, he's a professor at uh, his name is uh, Paul DeLacy, and he's a professor of linguistics at Rutgers. And he recently retired. And I recently reinvited him back on my show. I probably invited him on a few times uh, too many because uh, he's probably tired of me. But uh, he's an expert in glossolalia, oh. which is the fancy Greek word for speaking in tongues. Yeah. And, uh, believe it or not, that, that was his career from a non-believers perspective to do the analysis on people who claim the ability to speak in tongues. So from a Protestant perspective, you might be familiar with this more than us Catholics are. Maybe the charismatics uh, are involved with uh, speaking in tongues more than more than other Catholics are. But I find it absolutely amazing. And, and you know, I've, I've joked when I've talked to him before saying, like, if, if I weren't doing what I'm doing right now, maybe I'd be running a study on glossolalia to prove that it's true mm. or false. I don't know. It's pretty interesting to me. I've never heard that term. I didn't even know there was a study of that. Wow. So yeah. what's your what's your perspective on it? Oh, you know, it's one of these things that I really need to dig into it more. But, you know, I think that we have this uh, concept from the Bible of speaking in tongues mm -hmm. and the interpretation of tongues. Right. And you know, I, I've been to different... Uh, Pentecostal services or charismatic services where you see people belting out uh, singing in tongues or speaking in tongues and yeah. or, or using their prayer tongue, as they might say. And it's quite a thing to see. And, and it's a little bit disconcerting for someone when they first see it. Sure. Um, I don't know if either of you guys have uh, experienced that. Oh, and, yeah. All the time. You know, I think I've that, seen it. Uh, you know, it's quite a thing to behold. And, and Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. You know, I, I think, um, you know, obviously it's biblical. Yeah. And I, I know that these people who, who do it, they, they use it in prayer. So they're, they, they're well-intentioned people. But to my ear, it's something very foreign and I, I don't know what to make of it. So mm -hmm. I, I guess my initial statement is, is that, yes, it's in the Bible. And yes, it could be amongst us in modern times. And I do believe there's some sort of a thing as authentically speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. um, of course, in the Bible, when it happened, uh, the apostles were doing it. They spoke a language and everybody understood them. Yeah. And the current modern version is they speak a language and nobody understands them. So it's slightly <laughs> different. Um, but I'd love to do, you know, I'd love to do a study with people who claim the ability of interpretation of tongues, you know, to see if, you know, you have uh, two different people saying the same thing. Do they get the same translation or two different people with the gift of interpreting the same tongue? Do they hear the same thing in a, in a, in a separate study? I think that would be so interesting to, to dig into. So, uh, so I think of it, I got to study it a little bit more. I know of somebody who witnessed that and they, it was, it was tongues and there was an interpretation. Gumby, can you lighten us? Um, I do. Yeah. Yeah, there was a. You talked about it uh, in uh, happening at the church before, where somebody stood up and they oh, interpreted. I, I got a few different stories, but yeah. yeah, I mean, much what he's saying. There are certain times growing up with it out of balance within the charismatic church, where it was something that was uh, contrived and recreated every week, and you felt like if it wasn't a part of your service or you know not part of the experience, and somehow the Holy Spirit wasn't there, and it, you know you bombed. Yeah. That week. Uh, yeah. Uh, but the few moments where I felt well, it was genuine were all of a sudden out of the blue, the, you know, this one lady, this elderly lady who's very conservative, very kept to herself. And she started play, uh, praying and it was during a prayer service. And all of a sudden she just started <clears throat> speaking and she's Spanish and she started speaking this other language that no one knew. And there was an orderly. Uh, translation for it and I, I don't remember what it was it, it was it was meant for someone specific 
someone knew what, what she was saying. Um, and, and that was the end of it. You know, there, was, there wasn't all this hype around it. Right. And so nobody could dismiss it. Nobody felt, uh, you know, like they were trying to do something and recreate something. And yeah, yeah. so that, I, but I've also been told by people, you know, if, if you don't have the gift of speaking in tongues and, you know, it's a salvation issue. Well. <laughs> For me, I, you know, I, I've always pushed the idea of speaking in tongues away. So yeah. I just, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a complicated thing. I mean, it's fascinating. And like I say, I'd love to dig into it with a full study. I'd love yeah. to dig into Eucharistic miracles more with a full study. So I think that, mm. you know, hopefully I get to do this for a while uh, because I think there's so much to explore in the world. Yeah. Yeah. We, sure. we actually had uh, Ray Grahalba on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it, we talked about Eucharistic miracles. <laughs> so, um, I don't, have you have you uh, had any inter- interactions with him yet? Yeah, I've interviewed him on my radio show, and I know he's working on that that film that's coming out. I'll be excited to see that. Um, but yeah, no Eucharistic miracles. I think, you know, we we talk about you know what are the most convincing types of miracles, and I think, you know, I've got this uh, I've got this new book. Here you go. Here's the cover: uh, Science and the Miraculous. And so um, in that book, I try to dig into all the miracles that the Catholic Church uses science to to validate. So we're talking about things like. Um, you know, Marian apparitions where they might do brain scans to, to check what's going on with a visionary. Or we talk about uh, weeping statues of the Virgin Mary where they will test the fluid coming out of the statue or x-ray the statue with for an internal duct work. Or the stigmata where people are burying the wounds of Christ and they look at the wounds and how they're forming, you know, or how they're healing. Mm. You know, we talk about all these different cases or incorruptible bodies of saints, you know, and is there proof of, uh, of uh, preservation, things like that. But then we talk about Eucharistic miracles and I think that if you had to pick one out of the list that's got the most science behind it that can prove that something is truly happening that's inexplicable, I think Eucharistic Miracles is it. And I'm really excited for Ray's movie coming out because I think that if they do it in the right way, and I'm sure that even if they do it in the wrong way, it'll still pique some interest. But, you know, it's hard to argue with what's going on there. It's hard to look at that and say, wait a minute, this is something, what is going on exactly? And it's hard to just walk away and say, I'm just going to sleep at night without thinking about this ever again. So I think Eucharistic miracles are pretty important uh, for uh, welcoming people to the Catholic Church. Absolutely. And that's, I was going to bring your book up next because I found your book to be a really interesting um, resource. I was going through all of the, uh, the, the list of all of the scientists there were also fathers of the church, sure, doctors sure. of the church. I was like, this is an amazing resource. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I mean, the uh the 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 line of reasoning that we always hear is that the church is anti-science. We hear that, you know, the church, you know, we, they talk about the Galileo affair or you know, throughout history, how the church has been opposed to science and tried to shut down science and science and faith can never go hand in hand. But it turns out, you know, things like uh, uh, the first genetic, the father of genetics is Gregor Mendel. He's he's a monk or the uh, the guy who came up with the Big Bang Theory, uh, Georges Lamatra. He's a he's a Belgian priest. Right. You know, I think that I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. insane when you look at the, the contributions of the Catholic Church, uh, both as a patron of science and all these people saints and uh and bishops and uh fathers of the church and doctors of the church like you said all these people have had some sort of their hand in science and 
even though, you know, we might say in modern times, the church isn't that patron of science that it used to be, the underpinnings of science uh, come to us today because of the Catholic Church. I mean, there's no way you can argue with that. And I just tried to include a chapter on that just to get people, uh, you know, clued in a little bit that the church and science can go together in a big way. Absolutely. I have a, I have a quote here. I loved it. It was, uh, even a cursory review of the history of science might serve as a quick reminder that the Catholic Church has led scientific discovery in many fields, and the scientific revolution was itself undertaken by people of faith, such as Kepler, Galileo, Pascal, and Newton. Groundbreaking ideas were developed by Catholics, like those of Nicholas Copernicus, with foreshadowing the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, heliocentrism and Jean uh, Baptiste Lamarck, whose Lamarckism foreshadowed the theory of evolution. Whole branches of science were founded or advanced dramatically by those professed the Catholic faith, including Antoine Lavoisier, uh, Father Nicholas Steno, Father Angelo Secchi, Gregor Mandel, and Father George Lemaitre. That's mm. uh, yeah. out of the book. <laughs> so, where's the rift? Why, why the rift? Where did a rift come from? That's a good question. I think, I think honestly, I think part of it is propaganda. It's, I think part of that is just simply a war against the church. The church is anti-science. There are a few uh, pushbacks that, from certain people in the church mm-hmm. that did happen. But I think that they use those very few examples against the church. And I, so is it a competitive thing? Like, is it a challenge to the authority of God being all creator? And in that way, is it, I mean, what, why? why? Why is there such a rift there within the church then? <laughs> I, don't I mean, think... I'm just trying to wrap my mind around it and why, you know, because I can see, I, for me, it's just a process to figure things out, you know? I. yeah. I think there people try to create more of a separation than there actually is. Most of the uh, the main branches of science were founded by the church. I mean, most a lot of them directly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's I think a lot of it is is unnecessarily um, pushed against the church. Mm. Quick pause right there. We're gonna do a word. From our sponsor, have you ever wanted to train Muay Thai? Perhaps there's no gyms near you. Perhaps you work odd hours. Perhaps, like a few of us, you don't like germs. Whichever way it goes, you can train online with some of the best instructors from around the country, either live or in class with other students. Living Muay Thai gives you the chance to do all of this and much more. So jump into live classes and on demand right now. LivingMuayThai.com Hey, it's Gumby here from Bible Over Brews. Are you looking to get some editing done in your podcast? Maybe you don't have the hours or time it takes to edit your content, but you still need to get it done. Maybe you need a customized track or a song for your podcast or your next project without having to worry about copyright issues. Well, look no further than soulworkmusic.com, where this footwork is done for you. I'll get that editing post-production work done right for you, or create you that customized song that fits your project or podcast to help support your life's work. If this sounds like what you need, reach out to me at soulworkmusic.com. Again, at soulworkmusic.com. And remember, there's nothing taboo over brew.
I, I think one of the, the challenges is that the church isn't just an organization that funds art and science and architecture. It's, uh, it's an organization that, you know, frames morality for the world. And so, you know, if you embrace the church as this great contributor to science and perhaps establish God as the, the, the source of all creation, then you have to start opening yourself up to the morality that's being uh, suggested by the church. Okay. If you're not willing to do that, you better dismiss the church and say, well, you know, they're anti-science, they're not, they have nothing to say here. And so I think that once you accept the church, uh, you've got to start uh, looking at the morality of it as well. So um, I think that's the big challenge for a lot of people today. Mm. Yeah. And like you were saying, the Galileo affair is, is one they bring up all the time, which is funny because it totally neglects Copernicus, who was already teaching, you know, uh, a heliocentric universe 100 years before that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly there are things that, that people get uh, twisted up about, about the Galileo Fair. But, but really, when you read the chapter of my book and you see the, the contributions of Catholics, you know, believing Catholics throughout, throughout the ages, I think it's, it's pretty compelling to say that the church has had a big role in the, in the scientific revolution. So, yeah, that. yeah no, I, I agree. And again, I, I think the book is, is great. Not only is it, is it fun to read through, it's refreshing on the mind to see science and faith holding being held hand in hand but uh it's it's a fun one to go back to because you see these like i've already bookmarked a bunch of stuff in it (laughs) and so it's fun to go back and look at the notes that you were taking and say man look look at all this right here look at this right here you know and so I, I think it's a great resource and i think it helps to re re uh reinforce uh faith and clear thinking well, thanks. I, I appreciate you guys checking out the book. It's Science and the Miraculous. It's a, uh, it's a book I've been wanting to to write for a while. And actually, the subtitle is How the Catholic Church Investigates the Supernatural, and that's the title of my talk that I've been giving around the country for years now. Mm. And I, I give uh, you know maybe twenty talks a year at different parishes and conferences and otherwise. And um, people are fascinated with this idea that yeah. miracles yeah. do happen and that the church cares enough to try to rule them out with miracles and prove them where possible with, with science. So, um, you know, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating topic. And, and most people think, again, science and faith are opposed, but they're absolutely not. And in fact, the church employs science uh, when it comes to specifically this topic of miracles. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And again, that just legitimizes when one does get voted as a miracle. Right. I, I really do think that. But you have some modern people, and I won't mention their names. Uh, okay, maybe I will. <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson, people like that, where I've heard an interview from him, and it was about, you know, the role of church and faith and in science. And, <clears throat> and I'm paraphrasing here. I mean, you can look it up on YouTube or whatever. But he said, you know, I don't have a, par- a problem with people, you know, being religious or having faith or spirituality. He's like, I have a problem when that stuff gets taught in school. And so that's drawing a pretty hard line. Yeah. So I I don't feel like that helps, you know, what we're trying to do to have this healthy balance in marriage between science and the church. Right. And we have such visible people like that who, you know, for me, he's like a, a modern day, I don't know. I mean, he's 
he's someone everybody looks up to for science, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and again, it's, I think whenever that argument comes up, and I use it where, it's, again, this book is a great resource, um, you can go back and you can say, well, what about this scientist? I, 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 even before I knew he was involved with the church, I mean, years ago, I used to use the term Occam's razor and use his theory mm-hmm. before even knowing he was a man of faith. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, this stuff is documented, you know? Yeah. So I, I just can't understand why at this point there's still such a schism there, you know? Yeah. I, to be, to be kind of weird, uh, <laughs> I think it might be starting to come full circle. And I think it's because other people from other faiths are starting to push back now, too. Mm. Uh, like, if you look at my my uh, my sons, I was helping him with social studies all year long, right? Um, and they were made sure that you got each branch of everybody's faith. And even though I may not agree with all those faiths, it was nice to see that... And he's in an online school... It, it was nice to see that they were reinforcing the idea that you can still learn faith in school. Yeah. So and it's not it's not a Christian school; it's a secular school. It's, mm-hmm. But it's it was nice to see that his school included that. Mm-hmm. Right. So so it, it might be again we're you know I'm Catholic. I support Catholic faith. I believe it's the true faith. But it is good to see school including branches of faith in its instruction. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, when you leave it out, you're you're there's obviously a hole in the picture, right? I mean, I think mm-hmm. that I think that's a way to to accomplish it to say that there are many faiths that people believe, and uh, but to acknowledge that faith is an important part of the human experience, I think that that's essential. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. So, what kind of future projects can we see coming up from you? <laughs> well, I think that uh, you know I've. Believe it or not, as I mentioned, I, I was just in Ireland and England filming six new episodes of Explore, and uh, we're actually going to do a Miracles of uh, St. Patrick kind of program. Uh, he's, a, he's a great miracle worker, as you, as you may or may not know, but uh, we're doing a, an hour-long special on that. So Ooh, wow. I'm about that, but I think we have something like um, 12 or 18 episodes that are filmed that haven't been edited yet. So we're in the process of oh, every wow. month churning out uh, new episodes of Explore. So in September, we have a brand new season coming out of uh, 12 episodes. And then next year, we'll have 12 new episodes. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really an exciting thing that we film so many and that the, the recreations are being done for those episodes. So uh, that's an exciting thing. And then in uh, July, we have two new episodes of They Might Be Saints. And one is Rhoda Wise. I don't know if you know that name. No. But that uh, a woman from Canton, Ohio, and she's a servant of God. And uh, we were just there filming not too, not too long ago, maybe in May. And that episode will come out in July. But uh, when you talk about Americans with mystical, miraculous phenomena surrounding them, Rhoda Wise is the number one uh, person in the history of the United States, if, if I had a vote. So, wow. um, and what's really fascinating is, is that she had this house, which is now called the Rhoda Wise House, but Rhoda Wise had the stigmata and these visions, and people would come in the hundreds to her house, especially when they needed a healing or some sort of a, a cure or, or uh, something in their life. But people would come to their house with an ailment, and they'd pray with Rhoda, 
and then they'd go home. Maybe they'd be healed. One of those people who came to her house uh, was this woman named Rita Rizzo. And you may not know who that is, but that is the future Mother Angelica. Oh. So if it weren't for uh, Rhoda Wise and the healing that Rita Rizzo received through her uh, intercession or her prayers, uh, maybe there's no Mother Angelica and maybe there's no EWTN and maybe I don't have a job. Uh, I don't know, but that's the least important of all these things. But uh, of course, Mother Angelica is uh, might be saint in our opinion as well. So she had such a huge role with uh, with EWTN and evangelization. So I think that, you know, all these things are interconnected and this episode is going to draw that out. So. And then we're going to be doing an episode on Father Augustus Tolton, uh, the first black American priest. And so um, that'll be following right after that one. So uh, we've got those two episodes coming out in July. So pretty excited about that. Wow, that's awesome. That is fantastic. What is your schedule like flying around the world? I mean, that's got to are, – are you like always – you know, uh, do you, can, you, can you ever figure out what time zone you're in? <laughs> Well, I, I do have this weird habit of uh, needing to sleep with the lights on uh, when I stay in a new hotel because I do travel so much that I'm co completely discombobulated when I wake up what bed I'm in. So I, uh, I do this weird thing of sleeping with the lights on. I know that's probably more information than people need, but um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I what we do is we try to film a lot. Uh, packed into one trip. So for we filmed those six or seven episodes on the recent trip when we were in Italy. I think we filmed 10, 10 episodes. So we do this over the course of a week, believe it or not. So we really, you know, pack a lot in and then we bring it all home and then work with the editors uh, to, to make the episode. So we try to be pretty efficient about it. It's got to be like an 18 hour a day. Uh, they are long days. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's sun up sun, sun to sun down. That's, that's extensive. Yeah, and you know when you're when you're in Ireland, you need to finish the day with a Guinness, so it's a it's a it's a tricky thing. And start That's the right. day with one. Yeah, <laughs> I do show up at random times, but uh, we got all our filming in, so that was good. So awesome. you, you're involved with all the way to the end, the editing and all of that. You're you're in the mix. Yeah, I, I think I think one of the the fun things of the episode, and I take great pride in this, is that um, when you watch an episode, watch the credit list at the end. It's very short. We have, uh, you know, we accomplish a lot with an incredible, uh, talented team who's, uh, you know, they 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 have their their hands in in multiple parts of the process, and and I perhaps I'm the I'm the uh, I'm the dreamer behind the whole thing. I, I do the I do the scripts in many cases, and I'll do the voiceover, and I'll pick the stories. Uh, but you know, I think that we all wear many hats, and so you know, yeah. we all we all. You know, whether it's the film guys also doing a little bit of editing or, or whatever it may be, or, um, you know, we've got people doing multiple jobs. So I think with our small crew, we're able to to pull these things off. And I'm really proud of, of the level of quality that we've been able to achieve. Absolutely. Yeah. So how many are on that crew at any given time? So when we film, we usually film with a crew of four if we're doing our international travels. And same with when we do They Might Be Saints, we've got a, a crew of four. And then then different people plug in who are you know costume designers or in the Rotowise uh, cause we had a, a makeup artist was absolutely incredible because Rotowise uh, had the stigmata, right? So yeah. we had to reproduce the stigmata using makeup. And it was absolutely amazing to see, you know, these, it was actually somebody who was a, 
maybe a Halloween kind of haunted house makeup artist who stepped into the role and and could really make those wounds appear, uh, you know, out of thin air, really. And so seeing them work and everybody, uh, you know, pulling their weight as, as far as uh, bringing something to the table, I think it it it's, it works out so well. Just to have a tight crew, and we have we have more control over it when it's a smaller yeah. crew. We don't have yeah. all those levels of bureaucracy. I do this program with uh, with uh, the History Channel called The Proof Is Out There. I'm not sure you've ever seen this show, but uh, but I appear on that show once in a while. And uh, on that show, you know, when we do when they do filming, they have something like five or six people hopping on the the Zoom call to just. Ooh okay everything and they, the quality is so good you can't blame them for that but you know they have so many levels of of uh, red tape you know we we were able to to skirt all that and, and just do it do it more smoothly i think well that's awesome that's awesome it does show and that's yeah man so the so that your day alone is long so how many hours are you putting in tonight with writing the scripts and everything well, I think that, you know, I, I definitely go into bursts, right? Like I have to work really hard to get those scripts done. And then I hand it over to the editors and the editors are, are just magical the way they take the footage that we captured and, and some some direction on my end. And then the scripts that I write and the voiceovers that I record and they, they put it all together. And then I get to review it along the way and, and, and uh, work on some of the graphics and things that go into it so yeah it's a it's a process but yeah the script writing is definitely the long hours and the travel with the filming are the long hours but in between thankfully you know with, with these great you know teams of editors it, it works out really smoothly so awesome oh, <laughs> it's quite a bit it is it's a lot of work <laughs> right Oh, and I did wear my. I mean, I, 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 this is my dream job. I love doing this. I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, doing the TV shows or the radio shows or writing the books or leading the pilgrimages or giving the talks. I mean, those are all fun things, but I'm all miracles all the time. So it's all, it's like a Mexican food. It's like the same stuff, uh, just repackaged in different ways, right? So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Speaking of Mexican, I wore my original selfie shirt. Haha, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yeah, she's my favorite, so a uh, good choice. And she uh, she made it on the cover of my book as well here. So, uh, yeah, Our Lady of Guadalupe, is uh, she's the one who I, you know, give credit to for dragging me into all this miracle stuff in the first place. So I, I appreciate the shirt. I don't know if you've heard about these. I was telling Gumby earlier, I was able to get my hands on the Encyclopedia Guadalupana. It's the concise 500-year encyclopedia of our lady of guadalupe and it's uh right. yeah it's really cool and i'm i'm probably going to write a short blog just to break it down so to follow the timeline of the 500 years so that's amazing oh yeah it, so, so I, I take great pride in owning every book ever written uh, on uh, on miracles and you can see my my uh my uh my bookcase back here and i do not own that so that was my that's my next purchase <laughs> I'll, I'll give you some links later thanks <laughs> uh, although i will warn you i can only find it in spanish that's okay okay <laughs> yeah well, one of the one of the programs that uh i really uh take great pride in and i don't know if you guys have seen this one it came out on ewtn last december uh, for the feast day of our lady of guadalupe it's called this guadalupe mysteries and it's a uh hour-long documentary where it goes into all the sort of the miraculous qualities of the tilma 
And uh, I was able to go to Mexico with my film crew, and we were able to interview Monsignor Eduardo Chavez, who is the uh, vice postulator for Juan Diego and the absolute world expert on Guadalupe. We interviewed the bishop rector of the shrine there. We got to go in there, uh, and we were the first uh, American crew ever to interview him in English, so that was amazing. We, uh, we interviewed the top scientists in the world who have studied the tilma and all the incredible things with the musical notes and oh, the, the mountains and... You know the eyes the whole deal so um, we interviewed all the top people and we put it together in an hour-long special and uh, that was actually recognized at the uh, the Gabriel Awards this past year um, for and I'm really proud of that project so check that one out if you love Our Lady of Guadalupe you we we cover all the all the miraculous qualities all in one show so that's my next purchase <laughs> I, uh, I I just I just saw that later today when I was going through your materials and I was like, ah, I missed one. <laughs> yeah, that, that one, that one we're really proud of. And I think that the, uh, the recreations done with that on that one are really, really, uh, spectacular. There's, there's this one shot where it's, a, a it's like almost a 360 shot of our lady on top of the mountain as Juan Diego is approaching her and she kind of spins on the top of the mountain during the apparition. And I think it's kind of a, a cool effect that the, uh, that the editors were able to pull off. So wow. that's awesome. Yeah, that is my favorite apparition. So there you go. <laughs> we both on that one. That's awesome. Uh, Gumby, you have any questions? Uh, yeah, you know, I do have a question. Knowing your background in science and <clears throat> in engineering, is there any confirmed miracle that the Catholic Church, you know, legitimizes that you haven't completely bought into? Is there any one of them that it was hard for you to accept? Uh, I know it's I, I know it's accepted within the Catholic Church, but I have some reservations. You know, not a full buy-in, sure. or maybe it was a journey until you accepted it. Yeah, I think that uh, it's a great question. Thank you. Nobody's asked me that before, so thanks for winning the prize of being original. Um, on that one, um, you know, there's there's a number of things, right? I mean, I think that. St. Januarius, do you guys know that one? So there's this, it, check out the episode of uh, Explore Naples, which is a fun one. Um, okay. And uh, so Naples has like uh, 20 or 30 patron saints, okay? They're, they're really big into their patron saints, but their number one patron saint is St. Januarius or San Gennaro in Italian. And go to Italy on uh, September 19th if you want to see something really cool because... Um, Every single year on his feast day, you'll see uh, something remarkable happen where the entire uh, city of Naples gathers at the Basilica and it's packed with people. It's packed, you know, wall to wall people. We had our film crew. We couldn't get as close as we wanted to. Uh, we just filmed the crowd at some point. But on his feast day, they have a mass with the, with the local bishop. And in the middle of mass, he stops the mass and he walks over and he grabs this relic of St. Januarius. And it's actually a relic of dried blood, okay? So he holds the thing up and he holds it sideways and it liquefies and turns into liquid. Wow. Anybody who's had a Band-Aid knows that blood dries up pretty darn quick. So this is a third century bishop martyr who was, uh, who was killed for the faith and they saved his blood like Catholics like to do. We saved the, the pieces of the saint. So they saved his blood. 
It dried up in this uh, ampule or glass reliquary. And every year on his feast day, turns from dried blood to liquid blood in front of everybody. Wow. And except for the years that it doesn't. So on the years that it doesn't, Naples is hit with earthquakes, with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, financial collapse, coronavirus, whatever it is, some kind of crazy thing happens. So when that when he turns that vial sideways and it starts sloshing around, turning to blood, it's louder than any uh, football game in Texas uh, with a game-winning touchdown. The crowd cheers because that's the sign of a good year for Naples. And uh, being there in person, you know, go for the pizza, but stay for St. Januarius. It's <laughs> and uh, it's incredible. And what we did is, as I said, we brought our film crew there, and it was so packed with all these thousands of people, we couldn't get close enough. So we said, we're going to come back at nine at night just to get our get back into the basilica and film. And it was still filled with people, and the streets were still filled with people partying and celebrating that it was going to be a good year in Naples. I mean, that was a serious street party, but it's absolutely amazing. And so, you know, maybe this is one of the top Catholic miracles of all time, but maybe it's not. They've never cracked open the ampule and tested the blood. They've been able to do some kind of spectroscopy studies, which show that it's a blood-like material in there but they've never been able to test it as being pure blood without some kind of an additive. But nobody knows how it happens. It's never really been reproduced. So it's one of these uh, fantastic Catholic moments. And in the book, uh, Science and the Miraculous, you'll see a little bit about St. Januarius in the book, but uh, it's it's really a, a sight to see. So so that probably stands out as, as a remarkable miracle that uh, I'd love to, to have tested a little bit. Yeah, man, that's a great story. Right? Wow. <laughs> wow. So outside of Our Lady of Guadalupe, is, do you personally have uh, a favorite miracle um, or event? That's a good question. I always revert to Our Lady of Guadalupe with that question. So thanks for taking that off the table. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that uh, the Shroud of Turin is the other a Kyropoita image or not made from human hands image that we have. And of course, it's the purported burial cloth of Christ. Um, and it has never been, you know, validated by the church as being authentic. Um, you know, I think you guys may have seen the studies that have recently come out um, in this past year, the x-ray testing that puts the data at about 2,000 years instead of making it a medieval, you know, carbon-14 test result. So I think that's pretty exciting. Um, wow. So I, I'd love to see that uh, further studied in a peer-reviewed study. Um, and, I, and I had one of the experts on that study on my radio show recently. Um, and so I, th I think that's pretty remarkable. And if they ever get around to, you know, studying that, um, I think a lot of people are gonna gonna say, wait a minute, what is this thing? Because they still don't know how it's made. So if they can do those studies and it does come back to be 2000 years old, people can stop ignoring it because in 1988, when the University of Arizona and those other universities came back with those kind of uh, difficult, uh, you know, test results that said, you know, you know, 1400s or whatever it was, everybody tuned out and said, Shroud of Turin, it's not authentic. It's just a hoax. It's a it's a forgery. Everybody tuned out for decades. Mm -hmm. But I think if it comes back to be 2000 years old, people have to say, OK, what is this thing? And they don't know how it was made. You know, this is the 21st century. We know how to make everything. We know how everything is made, yeah, but they yeah. still don't know how the Shroud of Turin was made. So if it's 2000 years old with a mysterious image that modern science cannot, you know, duplicate, 
what are we dealing with there? You know, is this evidence of the resurrection? I think that's interesting. So I'm hopeful that that comes up. And then Eucharistic miracles, as I've mentioned before, are so compelling to me. You know, I think that's another thing that, you know, you have these Eucharistic miracle samples from all around the world. They are all blood type AB. They are all striated heart muscle. Um, they, you know, and, but, you know, to my mind, what about the DNA, right? So if you had DNA tests that showed the samples in Tichla, Mexico, and also in India, and also in Lanciano in Italy, in all the hundred or so other places around the world, what if those cases all matched up to have the same exact DNA? Doesn't everybody have to become Catholic by rule at that point? <laughs> I mean, I think that's pretty interesting. Sorry about that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting to me. And, uh, you know, I think that in many of these cases, the DNA is not there, which is also interesting, or the DNA is corrupted, so they might not be able to do that. But um, I really think that needs to, to be, you know, pretty high on the list of things that the church looks at, you know, um, I don't know if you remember with uh, when they found the bones of St. Peter, you know, in the secret study that was done by the Vatican uh, yes. years ago, and they didn't tell anybody they were looking for the bones, right? They just were, they were ex excavating and hoping they'd find them. And then when they found them, they said, by the way, for the last years, we've been digging for these bones and we found them, you know, he's really there. I really think they need to do a secret study with the Eucharistic miracles and eventually come out and say, hey, check this out, this DNA matches. So, you know, Pope Francis in 1996 in Buenos Aires, Argentina, when he was just Jorge Bergoglio, he had a Eucharistic miracle happen in his own diocese that he approved. So maybe he's the guy who, who should, uh, should rubber stamp this uh, study that's done on, on Eucharistic miracles. That would be cool. I, I love when that happened, too, because like, like other accounts I've heard of, he's like, yeah, let's not call it a miracle just go put it in glass let it dissolve <laughs> it's, and it's it's sat there for three years that's right yeah that's right yeah i think that there have been cases like in buffalo new york there was a an alleged eucharistic miracle a few years ago they put it in water and it did dissolve and then they couldn't do anything to test it when they wanted to so yeah the the argentina miracles are are, are pretty interesting for lasting that long and I do, I do have my sights on going to South America for some Explorer episodes, so maybe we'll do that one in the future. Awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. Incredible. Yeah, yeah there, was, there was some fun ones like that. There was, uh, we will be, I did secure a guest who does Science on the Shroud of Turin. So that one is coming up. That one is coming up. Are so, you able to drop the name of that guest? I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it's David I think it's Onesco or Arnisco. Okay. Yeah. Um, but he was uh, just at our parish and he does uh, presentations on the science uh, behind uh, the shroud, uh, the peer reviewed reports that came back. Um, and then he, uh, he actually tours with examples of what happens behind the, the shroud. Um, you know, exactly where, um, like, for example, the nails were the reason why it's called the hand, things like that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the placement, the reason why you can't see the thumbs. So he goes over all that stuff, plus uh, the pollens that are inside the, the Turin. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, but, yeah, we, we'll be yeah, I'll be tuning in for that episode. That sounds good. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I have a, kind of a weird off-the-book question for you. So is there any... 
are there any like fictional stories that inspire you? Are you like a Star Trek guy or Lord of the Rings guy? Or uh, that's a good question. I haven't gotten that one either. So both of you get a get the gold star for coming up with the <laughs> question. But um, yeah, I, I have to say that um, I'm not a Star Trek guy and I'm not a Lord of the Rings guy. Although I've seen my fair share of those things, but I I can't say I own any of the paraphernalia of those. But um, you know, I, I'm probably a Star Wars guy based on my age. I'm 40, 46. So um, I've, I've always, you know, had that as, as, as my first love growing up of, as far as, a, you know, that, that sort of genre. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess outside of the, the, uh, the uh, science fiction world, I'm a big sports fan. So I'm a Chicago guy. So I like the Chicago sports team. So I think that, uh, that it's not quite a religion, of course, but it's something pretty close. <laughs> That's something that Chicago and Cleveland share in common. <laughs> Indeed, Chicago's had way more success, though. Uh, that's true. 100% true. <laughs> awesome. So you, you guys are in Cleveland, is that right? Yes, Cleveland. Cleveland so, uh, so this Rhoda Wise episode that I didn't, I, I just uh, mentioned, she's from uh, Canton, Ohio. So uh, so this is close to you guys, and I yeah. was just, just in your neck of the woods uh, not too long ago in May, so... So that's great. Uh, I'm but, definitely yeah. fascinated by that story. Oh yeah, yeah. Go, go, you know, she, her house is still in Canton, Ohio. You can go and you can see all the, the different miraculous things that still exist in her house. I mean, they've got this, uh, you know, places of the the apparitions and this holy water and the whole deal. I think that uh, it's a pretty fascinating place, and it's a very humble home, but they still have it there. So, wow. if you're visiting the Hall of Fame, uh, you know there might not be many Browns in the Hall of Fame, but you can go to the Hall of Fame there, and uh, you can check out the Rhoda Wise House. Sounds like it might be a Bible of a Bruise trip. Yeah, it'd be really cool, man. Uh huh. <laughs> and we'll have to make sure we reference Mr. O'Neill and his episode when we do that. Indeed. <laughs> awesome. Um, I know we can go to MiracleHunter.com and we can go to EWTN. Um, are there any other places? Uh, I know I think I saw Sophia, I think, is one place where your books are available. Um, the floor is yours. Where can we find all of your material? I really recommend going to EWTN Religious Catalog, which is EWTNRC.com. I've got a whole page for Miracle Hunter on there, which is great. It's got all my books, all my Explore episodes, all the uh, They Might Be Saints and They Might Be Saints books. All my books are on there as well. So that's kind of the best place to, to find everything there. And there's quite a few things. So I encourage people to check out EWTN Religious Catalog for my stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much. I know that you have a very tight schedule. And I, I know you, you're giving us an hour. I, we really appreciate that and all the work you're doing, uh, the phenomenal shows and the books. Um, so hats off. Thank you so much for all the work. We appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. This was great. And I appreciate the beers. I'll be enjoying those. And uh, hopefully you guys can check out my book, uh, Science and the Miraculous, uh, next time you get a chance. So thank you very much. Absolutely. We'll post links for you right in this episode. Thank you. All right. <laughs> See you guys. Awesome. All right, take it easy. Thank you.